Please turn with me in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. We're in verse 11. Wednesday night here at Rocky Mount Calvary was a really confusing service. So I taught the whole message in Exodus. I got done and a guy immediately asked me, he says, what version were you using? I was like, well, the version I always use, New King James. And he's like, no, you weren't. So I was trying to use New King James and I'm pretty sure you were reading NIV. And what happened is I teach from my iPad and I go to Bible Gateway, and normally it comes up as New King James, but it was NIV, and so I copied in the NIV instead of the New King James. So just want to let you know I'll be in New King James hopefully this morning. So <laughs> let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your goodness. Lord, as we think about all of your promises are yes and amen in Jesus. And today we celebrate Jesus. And as we look at our position in Christ, our identification in Christ, we pray that it would be fresh, that we would really be walking in relationship with you, Jesus, and not relying upon legalism or rules. We're all going through different stuff, different challenges, different joys. We're here to meet with you. So we love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. It is a very big deal to take away from God's word, isn't it? I think most of us would agree that we wouldn't have the boldness to remove things from God's word. But what may be more subtle but equally as dangerous is adding to God's word. Many times people will add to God's word for the hope of protecting people from sin. Eve added to the word of God. When Satan came and tempted her in the garden, she says, God has told us to not eat of this tree nor touch it. God said don't eat of it, but he never said not to touch it. But she added that rule to God's command with hopes to protect her in Adam from sin. The Pharisees added to the word of God by teaching the commandments of men as the word of God. And it got things all twisted and perverted and and messed up because they added to the word of God. So there's a strong warning with how legalism can be lethal in our lives. When we're relying upon the commandments of men instead of relying upon the commandments of God. As we jump into our text this morning, there's going to be three words that kind of give us flow. And the first is identification, identification with Christ, and then it's application. How do we apply that? And then it's rejection. There's something that we are to reject. So verse 11, in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of sin of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. False teachers were coming to this church of Colossae and saying, look, it's great that you've trusted Christ as your Savior. Many of them would be Gentile believers in Turkey, in Asia Minor. But now, if you're really serious about your relationship with Christ, you need to be circumcised. You need to go back under the law. You need to eat a kosher diet. You need to celebrate the feasts and hold to the Sabbath day. And so Paul's writing to combat that. And he says, in him, and that's the focus, is this position that we have in Christ. If you've trusted Christ as your Savior, when you trusted him, you entered into Christ. 
where you're robed in Christ's righteousness, where in him, and part of being in Christ, the scripture tells us, you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. Circumcision was a huge deal under the old covenant. Abraham, when he received the covenant of God, it was confirmed with circumcision. Every Jewish male was to be circumcised under the old covenant. Moses had this amazing encounter with God to be called back to go to Egypt. The burning bush, the great I am, reveals himself, decides reluctantly to walk in obedience. As he's headed to Egypt, God shows up and tries to kill him. Like, what does God have, a split personality here? He's just sent this guy, but now he's trying to kill him. And here comes Zipporah. She knows the issue, and she circumcises their son. Moses wasn't right with God because he hadn't circumcised his son. After the circumcision, she looks at Moses and says, you're a bloody husband unto me. Guys, it's a bad day if your wife says that to you, right? (laughs) So every Jewish male on the eighth day would have to be circumcised. It was specific on the eighth day. The eighth day being the number of new beginnings. Seven is the number of completion. The eighth day is the number of new beginning. The eighth day of the week is always that number of new beginning in the week. We've completed a week and now we're starting another week. In order to be part of the Jewish community, if you were a Gentile, you had to be circumcised. That was what the law stated and declared. So it's understandable where those new believers, these Gentile believers, would be very susceptible to this teaching that you have to now be circumcised. And for some of us, this is really confusing as we read the Old Testament with the Old Covenant. We go, did God change his mind? You know? And it's not that God changed his mind. He's setting things up in the Old Covenant to prepare us for the New Covenant. He's pointing to his son, Jesus. And circumcision ultimately pointed to the work of Christ in our life. How so? Because God's desire in circumcision is that the heart would be dealt with. It was never to be an outward symbol only. It was to represent a heart that had been set apart and marked by God. And that's sometimes where Israel got off track is it just became an outward sign that they did with no inward conviction. So look at verse 11. It tells us that we were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. And that's Christ's work in our lives by putting off the body of sins of the flesh. The putting off in the Greek, it means total breaking away. It's the only time in scriptures that this Greek word is used that through what Christ has done upon the cross, there's been a total breaking away of sin by the circumcision of Christ. So when Christ's flesh was crucified upon the cross, the work of circumcision was done in our hearts is what really matters. God's not so much concerned with the outward action, but our hearts. And circumcision and God's priority of circumcision in the Old Testament was all pointing to what Christ would do upon the cross. So now as Gentile believers, they didn't have to be circumcised. In the book of Acts, we see the leaders of the church trying to decide, what do we do with these Gentile believers? Do they have to be circumcised? Do they have to eat a kosher diet? And as they sought the Lord, the answer was no. They didn't have to be circumcised. They didn't have to eat a kosher diet. So verse 12, buried with him in baptism, 
in which you also were buried with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. So we're circumcised in Christ, but we're also buried with him in baptism and then we're raised through faith. He's raised us from the dead. And it's important for us to identify ourselves in our position with Christ is that yes, we are crucified with Christ. We're, we're buried with, with him. Romans 6 puts it this way, that the old man, our sinful nature, was crucified with Christ and buried and were risen in newness of life. This means everything to us. This means the penalty of sin is paid for, the power of sin is broken in our lives, and the important thing for us is reckoning the old man dead is doing the math and and reminding our old man, yes, indeed, you're dead. (laughs) And you're buried, and you're risen in newness of life. And notice how this takes place. It was through faith. Through faith, as we trusted the gospel, that we then were placed in Christ, buried with Christ, and risen in newness of life. It wasn't through works. It wasn't through legalism. It wasn't by doing all of these things. It was through the gracious work of Christ in our lives. He's made us alive. He's created us to be new creations in Christ. In verse 13, And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven all your trespasses. Our spiritual condition prior to faith is dead in our trespasses. When we encounter those who are unbelievers, which I hope we do, we need to remember that they're dead in their trespasses. I think a lot of times we have too of a high expectation for unbelievers. Right? We think that they're going to be moral. We, we think that they're going to have this type of, of lifestyle, but the reality of it is, is they're dead in their trespasses just like we were before we received Christ as our Savior. Yesterday, I was running some errands yesterday afternoon, and I was waiting to turn on to Academy Boulevard, and I got honked at. Unjustly, I gotta tell you, it was unjust. You know, I've just, I was waiting, and I felt like the traffic was there, and it wasn't, wasn't safe for me to go, and I, and I started getting offended. And I'm like, why are you honking at me? You know, well, what's, what's the big deal here? And then I started to think, well, well, maybe they made a mistake, right? Maybe they didn't mean to, to, to honk at me. But it never came into my mind that maybe I got honked at justly, right? But I was seriously a little offended that I got honked at, right? And sometimes as we interact with, with unbelievers, we're so shocked that they live this way. We're so shocked that they believe this and, and all of those, those types of things. But the reality is, is they're dead in their trespasses. And they need to know the forgiveness that only Jesus can provide. And so this is the work that Christ has done as he's made us alive together with him. Allow that to sink in for just a little bit. Christ is alive. And how alive are we? We're just as alive as Christ. We're risen with Christ. The same spirit that rose Christ from the dead lives inside of us. So the standard of being alive is the standard of Christ, the gracious gift of Christ. As he's alive, we're alive. We're alive together with him. Good news this morning, he's forgiven all of our trespasses. 
Not some of our trespasses, but all of our trespasses. And Paul goes deep into this in verse 14. Having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. The law provided a handwriting of requirements against us. It revealed our sin to us. Not just the law, but also the intents of our heart. Jesus taught and he shared that if we lust in our hearts, we've already committed adultery. If we're angry, we've already committed murder. So God sees and judges the intents of our hearts as well. And this handwriting that was against us, it's, it's contrary to us. And sin, at first appearance, looks good and is fun for a season, but then kicks hard. It destroys us. It's contrary to us. Destroys our lives and those that we love. I remember in high school, I believe it was my freshman year, maybe my sophomore year, I had a teacher named Mr. Long. And he gave out a lot of detentions. And I was the recipient of some of those detentions. And he had some rules where you couldn't put your feet on the tray in front of you. You've got the basket to store your books. And so if you put your feet on that, you got a detention. If you chewed gum, you got a detention. And those kind of rules just incited rebellion inside of me. It's like... (laughs) I got long legs, you know, hey, you got any gum? I want to make sure to have some gum for Mr. Long. Just go right up to him and say, good good to see you, right? And so he'd write me up for, for detention. And that detention was the handwriting against me. Go sit in the office after, after school and spend some time, some extra time there in the detention room. So we've got the handwriting against us, but notice what happened And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed to the cross. So everything that's written against us, our sin, it's just. It's nailed to the cross and it's taken out of the way. To where we experience forgiveness to its fullest. David would write and he'd say, Blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven. David knew the weight of his sin, committing adultery and murder, but he knew the depth of God's forgiveness. And for us to be able to rejoice in knowing that our sins are forgiven completely by the Lord. When we receive the forgiveness of God, it's not because we deserve it. It's because the sacrifice of Christ is a worthy substitute for our sin. It's a worthy atonement for our sin. When we're struggling to receive or believe God's forgiveness, we may not see it this way, but we're really struggling with the worth of the sacrifice of Jesus. In essence, we're saying, I don't know if Christ's sacrifice is enough to forgive me of my sins. Because from the Father's perspective, it is. The Father goes, yeah, your sins have been paid for. They were nailed to the cross. Jesus died for them, and they're removed from you. And when the joy and the goodness of God, of man, all of my sins are forgiven, then hopefully it causes us to be a person that's willing to extend this forgiveness that we've received. If God so graciously wiped out the handwriting 
that was against me, then that's what he's done for all of my brothers and sisters in Christ. Amen? So when we sin against each other, to be able to say, as God has forgiven me, I'm choosing to forgive you. When an unbeliever sins against us to forgive them in hopes that they'll know the grace of God and be set free by Christ's sacrifice. I love the story of the woman at the well in John 4 because she's a woman that desperately needed to know God's forgiveness. Jesus asked her about her husband and she says, I don't have a husband. And Jesus says, you've answered well because you have four husbands and the guy you're with is not your husband. At that time, that's pretty astonishing. And she experiences the forgiveness of God, the forgiveness that only Jesus can provide, living water. She goes back to her village and she shares the forgiveness of God that she had received. She drank from the well of forgiveness. And guys, that's our joy. We get to go out into a community that's longing and looking for love and forgiveness that only Jesus can provide. And we can share with them and we can say, look, this is the reality of the brokenness of my life. And Christ forgave me and continues to forgive me and he'll forgive you as well as you turn to him. And God, in a moment, took this woman's greatest area of failure and used it as a trophy of his grace. She goes to her community and she says, I met a man who told me everything I've ever done. And if you read it there in John 4, all the men in the village then go out to talk with Jesus. It could be that they're like, this involves me. This woman was living in sexual sin. And God uses the forgiveness of sexual sin to get the attention of all of the guys in the community and they go out and experience Jesus for themselves. That's the glory of God. That's the depth of the cross that he can forgive us of our sin to the point then that that becomes a tool, a trophy for God to draw other sinners unto himself. I hope this morning the weight, the joy, the gravity that if you're in Christ, that your sins are forgiven because of your position in Christ just sits, sinks and sits in deep with our souls that we could rejoice in the Lord that our sins are forgiven. In verse 15, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them in it. So part of the work of the cross is Jesus defeated the enemy. Satan has no victory in our lives. We fight the spiritual battle from a position of victory. I think the context of this is very important because how does Satan like to come against us? Revelation tells us that he's the accuser of the brethren. So he's always going to accuse us by our sin. We overcome his accusation by the blood of the Lamb because Christ has paid the price for us on the cross. So when we're feeling condemnation, we need to hold to the cross of Jesus Christ and go, yes, I'm guilty, but I know that God loves me and Christ has forgiven me because of the blood of Jesus. The work of Christ is so sufficient to the fact that the enemy is disarmed, he's humiliated, he's made a public spectacle of, just as a Roman general would humble his enemies and make a public spectacle over his enemies. So that's the identification, and that's so important. By faith, that's who we are in Christ. So here's the application in verse 16. So let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival 
or a new moon or Sabbath day or Sabbaths. Because Christ is so sufficient in what he has done for us, the grace that we've received by faith, you don't have to let someone come into your life and say, hey, I was at your house, at your barbecue last Saturday, and I noticed that you had some bacon on your burger, and you had some cheese on your burger. Don't you know the law? You're not supposed to eat bacon, bacon cheeseburger. If you really love Jesus, you would hold to this kosher diet. Now, if you want to eat a kosher diet because the Lord has put that upon your heart or you think it's more healthy, absolutely go for it. But don't make it an issue of someone's relationship with God. Does that make sense? And you're going to meet people, if you haven't already, that want to judge you in this way. They say, look at the Old Testament. God gave the Sabbath and he gave the feasts. So why aren't you keeping the Sabbath? And why aren't you keeping the feast? And Sabbath begins when the sun goes down on Friday. And then it ends when the sun goes down on Saturday, that 24-hour period. So you need to keep the Sabbath if you really love God and if you want to be sanctified. And the feast, the Passover, and Pentecost, and first fruits, and unleavened bread, God gave those in the law. And you've got to hold to those feasts. And you need to know this verse. You need to underline this verse and say, wait a second. This is so clear in scripture. Don't let anyone judge you in these things. Don't anyone put that upon you as a requirement that you have to do in your relationship with the Lord. If you want to, by all means. And this is the reason why it's not a requirement. In verse 17, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. The food the drink, the festivals, the new moon, the Sabbath was a shadow pointing to the reality of Jesus and Jesus fulfilled all of these things. And this is so rich and it's so good because the shadow is powerful. When you look at just the Sabbath day in and of itself, this rest that was so important to the children of Israel, it is a powerful shadow to the reality of who who Jesus is. God says, I rested, I want you to rest, I don't want you working all the time. And so how did Christ fulfill the Sabbath? The intent of the Sabbath was to provide rest, and church, the finished work of Jesus Christ is the ultimate rest. It's the ultimate rest. For us to go, oh, I get it, Jesus died for my sins, he rose again, it's based upon his work, I get to rest in his faithfulness. I get to rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ and it provides rest to our souls. The book of Hebrews goes into this where the children of Israel were to come into the promised land which was rest. And the author of Hebrews tells us that was pointing to the rest that Jesus provides and we by faith live in the rest of Christ. Now, is it a good idea to take a day to rest? Absolutely. I think that God did not design us to go 24-7. We don't do a very good job of it as our, in our culture. But is it a law of God that it has to be Friday night to Saturday night? No, I think there's freedom in Christ now. And don't miss the bigger picture of the Sabbath, which is to enjoy the rest that is in Christ. The feasts in the Old Testament, the way that they point to Jesus is fabulous. We're currently studying Exodus. We just studied Passover. 
and the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Feast of First Fruits. The nation of Israel were slaves to Pharaoh. Pharaoh was hardening his heart, so God keeps putting these plagues onto to Pharaoh. The death of the firstborn, finally Pharaoh lets the children of Israel go. The way that took place was with the Passover. God said, take a lamb, kill the lamb, put the blood of the lamb on the door of your home, and then death will pass over. So the Israelites did that, and judgment passed over. Now God was making a statement about Jesus there. Jesus is the Passover lamb. Jesus is the ultimate lamb that died for our sins. And when we apply the blood of Jesus to our lives through faith, guess what? Judgment passes over. That's amazing. We see the feast of first fruits is when Christ rose from the dead. He was crucified on Passover. Do you think there's a message there from Jesus? He died on Passover. He's saying, I'm the Passover lamb. He rose from the dead on the first feast of first fruits. He's the first fruits of the resurrection. We're going to rise in a similar manner to Christ. It's the resurrection of Christ that brings fruit into our lives. The Feast of Unleavened Bread. Here you have this bread with no yeast. Yeast is a picture of sin. Jesus is the only one without sin. His flesh was broken for us. We celebrate that in communion and Christ's unleavened bread, his unleavened flesh, is what purifies us from sin. So don't undermine how valuable these feasts are, how valuable the Sabbath is. But guys, the point is Jesus. The point's Jesus. Let's say Amber, my wife, was gone for a week. And somehow the kids and I survived without her. She's finally home. And it's a nice day, and here she is on the, the sidewalk, and there's her shadow. And I'm like embracing her shadow. I'm down on my knees going, oh, your shadow is so beautiful. Hugging her shadow. You're watching this, and you're going, my pastor has lost his mind. What is wrong with him? He needs to embrace his wife, not, not the shadow. And that's the same way with, with these feasts and with the Sabbath. The substance is of Christ. So don't let someone judge you in these things. Embrace Christ. Let none of you cheat you of your reward. Let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels. These false teachers were trying to rob the church of their reward in Christ, of their position in Christ. And one of the ways that they were doing it is in false humility. And specifically with this teaching to go back under the law as a requirement in your relationship with the Lord is people will use false humility. They'll say, man, if you, if you want to love God, then you need to make sure and eat kosher. If, if you're, I've noticed that you like to show up to Bible study and man, you're really growing in the Lord. Do you know what the next step is? The next step is you've got to keep all of the feasts. I've never heard anybody recommend circumcision. That's probably a good thing, right? You know, it's like no one wants to go there, but they'll go there with the Sabbath and they'll go there uh, with the feast. I'm sure this morning that there's some of you that really are arguing with this teaching. You, you look at this and you're like, no, th this doesn't make sense to me, right? And, and be careful that we're not falling into this trap through this deception of false humility. And then also the focus 
was upon the worshiping of angels. There's this fascination with, with angels. We still have this fascination with angels today. You know, if we said, hey, we've got a really good Bible study for you in the Gospel of Mark, or you can hang out with an angel in the parking lot, what would you pick, right? Or would we get really excited about someone receiving Christ as their Savior, or hanging out with an angel, having coffee with an angel? There seems to be this fascination with angels, and angels are messengers of God and they're a blessing, but our focus is to be upon Christ. Intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind. So these false teachers were really elevating things that they hadn't seen, getting really spiritual. But then there was this vainly being puffed up in their fleshly mind. Verse 19, And not holding fast to the head from whom all the body, nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments, grows with the increase that is from God. So the tendency here is, okay, now they're focused on the feasts. Now they're focused on the Sabbath. Now they're focused on kosher diet. Now they're focused on this deeper, mystical, spiritual knowledge, and they're focused on angels. But you don't hear anybody talking about Jesus. You don't hear anybody walking with Jesus, following Jesus, elevating Jesus as the head. So Paul is exhorting here and saying, look, make sure that you hold fast to the head, that you hold fast to Jesus. When we hold fast to Jesus, look what takes place. We're nourished, we're knit together, and we grow. We're built up because of Jesus. I'm sure you've experienced this. When you're focused upon Christ and his goodness and walking with him, you go, man, I feel so built up. I feel, I feel so refreshed. I feel so nourished. When we get our focus off of Christ, that, that doesn't take place. We feel most knit together with other believers when we're focused on Jesus. We would probably never be together if it weren't for Christ. But isn't it beautiful to be together because of Christ? As we focus upon him, he knits our hearts together with other believers. And then he's the one who causes us to grow. With Christ, there is increase. Please hear me on this. Don't get yourself attached to a pastor. Don't get yourself attached to a Christian leader. Don't get yourself attached to an author. You know, they're not the head. Jesus is only the one who is the head. And more and more, we're seeing Christian leaders fall short, huh? And fail and even deny the faith sometimes. So what if your favorite Christian leader, if you would, all of a sudden denied the faith? What would you do? Hopefully you'd be fine. You'd be heartbroken and you'd pray for them. And if you know them personally, you'd, you'd reach out to them. But you're saying, no, I'm connected to Jesus, I believe in Jesus. He's the one that I follow. He is the head. And we kind of live in a celebrity culture, don't we? Where we're looking for celebrities. But at the end of the day, we're all sinners. Amen? And there's one head. There's one Savior. It's Jesus Christ. And so he's the one that we focus on. He's the one that we put our attention upon. In these last three verses, we see what we're to reject. And what we're to reject is really a religious system that isn't based on a relationship with Jesus. Rules that emphasize don't touch, don't taste, don't handle. So let's read it together. 
Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why as though living in the world do you subject yourself to regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle. Which all concern things which perish with the using according to the commandments and the doctrines of men. So the world is going to look for a system that's based on don't touch, don't taste, don't handle. There's something about us where we get really attracted to rules instead of a relationship with Jesus. We say, just tell me what not to touch, tell me what not to taste, tell me what not to handle, and that'll be fine. But Paul here says, all of those things that that concerns, they perish with the using. Okay, don't eat this. As soon as you eat it, it perishes. Don't touch this, the thing that you... You touched or you handled, it's going to perish. In verse 23, it says, These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-opposed religion, false humility and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. This is the Pharisees through and through. They had the appearance of wisdom. Religion's always going to focus on the outward instead of a relationship with God. And the Pharisees were really good at this. They would do things like they would tithe on their herb garden. Could you imagine? You're out there counting your mint leaves. Like, oh, I've got a hundred mint leaves. Mint grows like crazy. I got to make sure and tithe 10% of these mint leaves. They were literally concerned about swallowing a gnat. Because if they swallowed a gnat then they would be unclean. You had to wash your hands a certain way. All of these outward things. But what was going on inwardly? They were trying to kill Jesus. And ultimately they succeeded. So they're planning murder of the Son of God, but they washed their hands properly. They tithed on their mint. And people were walking around and they're going, oh, those, those are the guys that love God. Those are the guys that are walking in humility And then they're in this place of going, oh, thanks for noticing. Thanks for noticing. And they were living in the praise of men. And oh, look how they fast. They're neglecting the body. But here's the kicker. It had no value against the indulgence of the flesh. It couldn't conquer sin. It couldn't forgive sin. It couldn't transform a life. Only Jesus crucified, risen, a relationship with the living Savior can forgive us of our sins and break the power of sin in our lives. So hear me out on this. Let's, let's try to bring this home a little bit. You may face somebody that's trying to get you into the legalism of a kosher diet and Sabbath and those types of things. But probably for the most majority of us, that's not what we struggled with. You're not struggling with whether you should eat bacon or not, Right? That may be a health choice, but it's not a relationship with Jesus' choice. Make sense? So how does this mindset kind of play into some struggles that we do have? What are some system of rules that we have set up that we feel like, man, if I keep these rules, I'm good with Jesus. And if I keep these rules, this is going to result in my life being changed, in my life being transformed. Hear me out on this. I think one of them is reading the scriptures, right? We know the importance of reading God's word. This is how God communicates to us. 
So we have created a rule that says, read your Bible every day. So you read your Bible every day, and maybe you really get after it, and you're going to read through the Bible in a year, and you're checking off all the lists and, and going through it. And before you know it, it's legalism instead of a relationship with Jesus, right? And we feel good about our relationship with, our, with God when we read our Bible, but then when we don't read our Bible, we feel condemned. We're like, I don't, God loves me less today because I didn't read my Bible, <laughs> right? Now, is reading God's Word important? Yes, but it shouldn't be legalism. It should be a relationship where we go, wow, Christ, you love me. You died for me. You're my Savior. I want to know your love. I want to spend time in your Word. I'm seeking you in your Word out of the sake of relationships, rules or relationship. Now, inside of relationship, are there rules? Absolutely. Amber and I, because we love each other, there's a rule that we keep, right? We want to be faithful to each other and not walk in adultery. That's a rule, but it's based on relationship. It's like, man, I love my wife, so I want to be faithful to my wife. And sometimes I think in Christianity, we lose sight of the relationship and we focus on the rules. And we say, I got to be squeaky clean. I can't drink, I can't chew, I can't go with girls that do, Right? I got to get all the outward stuff. Right? I, we're, we're, we're so concerned with all the outward and all that people see, and, and they've got to perceive that I love Jesus and I, and I have a relationship with Jesus. But the reality of it is, is maybe we're not focusing on a relationship with Christ. We've just figured out a religious game. And Jesus is all about relationship, and he pursues us through his grace. And the law could never do what Christ has done in our lives. This is near to my heart because growing up in a Christian home, which I'm really thankful for, and had a lot of really positive elements, and I don't think it was my parents' intent or the church that I grew up in or the Christian school that I went to, but what I heard and understood was rules. What I heard and understood was don't listen to this music, don't watch this movie. This is what you're, you're not supposed to do with girls. You know, don't drink this, right? And I didn't have a relationship with Jesus. I didn't understand that he loved me. I didn't understand that he died for me. He might as well have been as far away as Mars in, in my reality of what, what I was going through. And everything changed in my life when I understood that he loved me. And the have-tos started to become want-tos. Once I understood his love... As a freshman in high school, the craziest thing happened the next day. I wanted to read the Bible. Prior to that, it was, you have to read the Bible. If you want to follow Christ, you have to to read the Bible. And so I hope that this is refreshing for you this morning to see all that Christ has done and then to focus on a relationship with him. And don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that holiness is not important. What I am saying is we're not going to get there through rules. The way that God gets us there is through relationship with him. And by all means, don't add any rules. We want to keep the commandments that God has given to us, but don't add commandments that are in that, not in there. You know what I'm saying? Don't, don't walk away going, man, I, I need to make this harder. Sometimes we put rules on others 
and we put rules upon ourselves that God never intended for us. They're, they're not in here. And at the end of the day, we're not keeping them, right? But yet we're teaching other people that they have to do it as well. I want to leave you with a verse. Turn with me over to Matthew 11. Matthew chapter 11, the words of Christ. In verse 28. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus, we thank you that it's all about you. It's all about a relationship with you. We thank you for your work upon the cross, your death, your resurrection, to where our hearts are marked because of your sacrifice. We're buried with you and risen in newness of life. Thank you that all of our sins are forgiven. Protect us from this trap of legalism this trap of relying upon rules and cleaning up the outward and take us deeper in a relationship with you. So we love you in Jesus' name.